The process of becoming a Christian is about coming to terms with the supremacy of Jesus. Coming to terms with the greatness of Jesus. The fact that Jesus is greater than my sin, Jesus is greater than my shame. The process of remaining a Christian is about daily coming to terms with the supremacy of Jesus. He's greater than the temptations that allure you. He's greater than the idols all around you. He's greater than the trials that assail you. Jesus Christ is greater. He holds the supremacy. Life as a Christian is about daily coming to terms with the greatness of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus Christ is greater. And this morning, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Acts, we encounter this glorious truth. Jesus Christ is greater. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, in the Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 928, page 928. And if you're here this morning and you need a copy of the Bible, you don't have one at home, we'd love to give you one as a gift. So as you walk through that lobby, there are three bookshelves there, the one closest to the restrooms, there are some black hard cover Bibles there, you can take one as a gift from us to you. So Acts chapter 19, uh, I'll read verses 1 through 20. And Luke is the author of the book of Acts. So Luke writes Acts 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the men in whom was the the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The goal of this sermon is to show the supremacy of Jesus Christ. To show the supremacy of Jesus Christ and to stir each one of us to have confidence in his supremacy, to trust in his greatness, no matter our circumstances. We just want to unveil the supremacy of Jesus through this time in this sermon. Well, we see in this passage that Jesus is greater. He's greater than John the Baptist. He's greater than unbelieving opposition. And he's greater than all demonic powers. That's the threefold outline of this passage Acts 19, 1 through 20, Jesus is greater. He's greater than John the Baptist. He's greater than unbelieving opposition. And he's greater than all demonic powers. So that's our outline this morning. First, Jesus Christ is greater than John the Baptist. Now we see this in verses 1 through 7. Luke tells us it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now, by way of review, we talked a little bit about this man, Apollos, last Sunday, who is a newfound ministry partner of Paul and of two other ministry partners, Priscilla and Aquila. So Paul is sort of gaining ministry partners as he goes and does ministry. And so we we read at the end of chapter 18 that Paul makes a brief stop in Ephesus before he heads back to his supporting church in Antioch. Just a few weeks there in Ephesus, but he does leave behind Priscilla and Aquila to establish a beachhead or a basis of ministry there as he goes back to Antioch to give a report there. Well, while Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus, they meet a man, a gifted man, an eloquent man named Apollos, used mightily of the Lord, but he's incomplete in his understanding, so they kindly take him to the side They fill up the gaps in his teaching and his understanding, and he is humble and receives it and is unleashed all the more to do ministry. He's there in Ephesus for a little while, and then he travels west across the Aegean and goes to Corinth, and there he encourages the brothers and sisters in Corinth. And so that's what we see here. Apollos is at Corinth. Paul has left Antioch starting his third missionary journey, And he goes and strengthens the Christians in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey, the body, the landmass of Turkey. He's strengthening those Christians, those churches that he planted. And he's moving inland, moving westward to the coast, a city on the coast named Ephesus, a city that four folks from Beacon got to visit about three weeks ago. We'll get to hear a report on that in just a couple weeks. Dylan Cauley, Dave Raffensperger, 
Gail Poliat, and then a friend from Hope Fellowship Church, Catherine Chung, got a chance to, to visit that city while serving among our partners there. So stay tuned for that. But that's where Paul was. He arrives in Ephesus, and there he finds some disciples. We read this in verse 1. Now, it turns out that these are not disciples of Jesus. These are disciples of John the Baptist. Well, Paul learns this after some probing questions. He says in verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, uh, No, we've never heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then Paul follows up with a question. Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. That is John the Baptist. So when you turn to the early chapters of Mark and Matthew and John and Luke, you read of this man, John the Baptist, who was akin to Jesus, a relative born about six months prior to Jesus, who was the front runner of Jesus or the forerunner, the one who prepared the way for Jesus. And the way that he did that was proclaiming a baptism of repentance Proclaiming a preparatory baptism, getting people ready for the Messiah. So we know that John the Baptist preached about the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 1, verse 8, John says, I have baptized you with water, but one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So it seems that these disciples of John are kind of secondhand disciples of John perhaps didn't hear John's message directly. We know that there was sort of a spreading, a diaspora, a scattering of John's disciples throughout the Mediterranean world. And so it seems that they've get some secondhand information or incomplete information. They don't even know that there's a Holy Spirit while John the Baptist actually talked about the Holy Spirit who would come upon people at the ministry of Christ. So, so Paul goes on to instruct them on whom John's ministry forecasted. Notice what he says in verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. In other words, the whole purpose of John's ministry was to point away from himself to someone who is greater, the strap of whose sandal John was not worthy to stoop down and untie. It was a, a marquee sign, a pointer to Jesus. That's what John's ministry was all about. And he did invite people to be baptized as a way to prepare themselves for the coming Messiah. And I can understand how this idea, when you open Mark's gospel, for example, chapter one, like, why are people getting baptized? Like, they need to wait to get baptized until Jesus comes. We have to understand, baptism has a rich history in Judaism. Jewish pilgrims who came to Mount Zion, to the city of Jerusalem, three times a year during the high holidays, they knew all about immersion in water. They, all, they knew all about baptism. A few years ago, I had a chance to go to Israel, and we visited Jerusalem. And I was stunned how many baptismal pools there are on the southern steps of the city of Jerusalem. These pilgrims would come, and they would come dirty and sweaty. And there were some 50 baptismal pools called mikvahs, where you would literally step down into the pool on the southern steps that led up to the temple. You would literally prepare yourself to meet with the Lord in the temple. It was a cleansing and a purifying in preparation to meet the Lord in the, in the temple, to worship him. And in the same way, 
John, who is considered the last of the Old Testament prophets, prepared people to meet their Lord by inviting them to a baptism of repentance, a preparatory one, preparing them to meet the Lord who would come months after John. So John's was a work of preparation and a work of pointing to the Messiah who would come. Well, these disciples of John proved to be quite teachable, don't they? On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's no questions, no qualms. They just, we will get baptized. So they humbly submit themselves to Jesus Christ and receive his baptism. Praise God. And thus fulfilling the words of John the Baptist. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. So what is John saying? When you hear about his ministry, John himself is saying Jesus is greater. Look, the one who's coming after me, I can't even stoop down and untie his sandals. He's greater. And in the gospel of John, that is the apostle John, we see John the Baptist saying, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. The message of John's ministry was Jesus is greater. And here in this passage, these former disciples of John are getting the message. Jesus is greater. He's the one who came, the one whom John pointed to. And now they're believers in this Lord Jesus. They become true disciples of the Lord Jesus. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon these new disciples is the verification that they actually are disciples of Jesus. Notice what we see in verse 6, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. The Holy Spirit falls upon these new disciples. This is very important. It's an important theme in the book of Acts. Disciples receiving the Holy Spirit is affirmation to them as converts that they're true Christians and to other onlookers that they are true Christians. The falling of the Holy Spirit in Acts is a work of verification and affirmation. These are not second-class citizens. These are not peripheral people in the family of God. No, they are part and parcel, integral members of the family of God. So we see this throughout Acts. For example, Acts chapter 8, Philip preaches to some Samaritans and they came to believe, and we see that the Holy Spirit visibly, tangibly falls upon them. Why? Because God is making sure that these Samaritans, who were always historically treated as second-class citizens, they're integral members. They receive the Holy Spirit. So God is affirming their inclusion in the, in the community. Likewise, Acts chapter 10, Peter and the Gentiles, Cornelius and his whole family, what happens when Peter preaches these Gentiles respond, they believe in Christ, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. They have been treated like second-class citizens, and the Lord's making sure, hey, these Gentiles are now integral members of the family of faith. They're included. It's a work of affirmation. And what does Paul do at the Jerusalem Council? Acts chapter 15, he just testifies, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon these Gentiles. They're legitimate Christians. They're not peripheral people. They're not to be marginalized. They're integral members. And here in Acts chapter 19, now it's Paul's turn. So we see Philip and the Samaritans, Peter and the Gentiles, and now Paul and John's disciples. The Holy Spirit falls on them. 
they are included. It's unmistakable, and it is public. The point here is affirmation, verification. These former disciples of John, with incomplete understanding, now are part of the family of God. Do you see, friends, it is of the utmost importance that people understand their equal footing in the church. There are not peripheral people. There are not central people. There are people all equal at the foot of the cross because we all have the same need. We are all sinners standing in need of a great Savior. This encourages our unity. This encouraged their unity 2,000 years ago. It's the Holy Spirit that affirms it. So the point here is affirmation. So as Acts 19 begins to unfold, unfold, we see the first picture that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. As we move on, secondly, we see he's greater than unbelieving opposition. Luke writes this in verse 8 and following. Paul enters the synagogue, verse 8, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul is following his typical practice. Where does he go when he goes to a new city? He goes to the synagogue among Jews, and he preaches Christ from the Old Testament, that Christ is the one that was forecasted in the Old Testament. And oftentimes he faces opposition. Here he lasts three months. In Thessalonica, he lasted three weeks, so they had a little less opposition. But in time, we see the hostility grows, and they move him out. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew for them and took the disciples with him. So in turn, he does face opposition, and he ultimately leaves the synagogue. Now, it's interesting how Luke describes these unbelievers. He says they're stubborn. The original word is scleraino. Scleraino, from which we get the word sclerosis. You know what arteriosclerosis is? It's the hardening of your arteries because of the buildup of plaques in there. They're not as flexible, and it's dangerous when that hardening continues. These are hard-hearted people who do not understand, they're not willing to submit to Paul's message. The Old Testament uses this word to speak of stiff-necked Israelites. Picture a dog, my dog, Jackson. And when he doesn't want to go anywhere, what does he do? He just, his neck just, and I'm pulling on it, he's just stiff-necked. Uh-uh, I'm not going that way. Uh-uh, I'm not going that way. And I'm just pulling. He is unwilling to be led. That's the picture of these people, both in the Old Testament, the stiff-necked Israelites, and here in the synagogue. Stiff-necked Jews who would not be led in the way of Jesus. Hard-hearted. Beware a stiff-neck spiritually, friends. If you are a Christian and you notice some sclerosis of the soul, you're in trouble. That's a hard heart. You need a tenderized heart that Christ gives to you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, our prayer for you is that God would tenderize your heart even as I'm preaching this word, that he would draw you near to him with his love and his mercy and this news 
of a Savior who died for you, who was buried in the tomb, and who rose again. Friends, beware sclerosis of your spirit, hardening of your heart. These folks spoke evil of the way. Well, what is the way? This is the way of Christ, who said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So early on in Christianity, to be a Christian was to be a follower of the way. You walked in the way of Jesus. So Paul moves from the synagogue to another public place where he could find a measure of peace in his proclamation. Verse 9, he began reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for about two years so that all the residents in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So he moves from one public setting, the synagogue, to another, the hall of Tyrannus, which was essentially a big lecture hall. We know that a lot of these ancient Greco-Roman cities were places of education and intellectualism. They had lecture halls where those trained in rhetoric and philosophy would teach. And so this is a place either owned by this guy, Tyrannus, or who was a renowned teacher. We don't know, but it has his name. And Paul has an opportunity to preach there. And tradition tells us that Paul was there from about 11 a.m. to 3 or 4 p.m., during kind of the hottest part of the day when most people went and got siestas and rested in the Mediterranean world. And they didn't do academic lectures during that time of day, so Paul had an open door to go and preach. And so that's what he did. He preaches in the hall of Tyrannus and gains quite a hearing. Well, notice what Paul's doing. He experienced opposition. That didn't shut him down. He perseveres. Paul is persevering by the strength of Christ in him. Jesus Christ is alive and well in Paul. He is greater than the opposition that Paul faces. Paul puts his trust in his Lord and finds strength. And notice, he stays for two years in a place where he experienced opposition. He stays. Friends, Luke is drawing our attention to the power of staying and proclaiming. We often want to flee when the heat is turned up in our lives, but oftentimes God wants us to stay and continue the work in his strength. The importance of staying. A pastor that I have learned much from, who pastors in Washington, D.C., his name is Mark Dever, he describes the work of a pastor in four words. Love Pray, preach, stay. Love, pray, preach, stay. I think about that often in, the, in my own difficulties as a young pastor. I'm called to love you, to preach to you, to pray for you, and to stay here until the Lord calls me onward. Love, pray, preach, stay the power of a staying steadfast ministry. He goes on to say, Mark Dever, we tend to drastically overestimate what we can accomplish in one year of ministry, but at the same time, drastically underestimate what we can accomplish in five years of ministry. Oh, how true that is. 
And that goes for all of us. If you're a Christian, you will drastically overestimate what the Lord can do through you in a year. But you also drastically underestimate what the Lord can do in you and through you in five years. Be patient. Stay the course. The result of staying is in verse 10. Paul continued for two years. Here's the result. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What's happening here? The word of the Lord is radiating outwards as a result of Paul staying and proclaiming. He just stuck to it. And the word little by little, like a pebble dropped into a pond, it just ripples, 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 goes out. This power of staying. Keep your post. Keep sharing. Keep loving. Keep praying. Stay. Take heart. Jesus Christ is greater than your opposition. He gives you power to persevere. Stay in the place that he has you and minister. Jesus Christ is greater. He's greater than John the Baptist. He's greater than unbelieving opposition. Thirdly and finally, he's greater than demonic powers. Luke tells us this in verse 11 and following. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. And we're about to see just how powerful these miracles were. Verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, there's danger in this passage. These are not holy relics like we see in church history. Big debate in the 8th century. Mosaics, paintings, figurines, statues, venerated as holy in and of themselves. I remember my church history class. We read of people in the 7th century who would, who would flake off a paint, a, a, a paint chip from Mother Mary's painting in the church into the chalice where they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, drinking down the paint chip. What's going on there? You're viewing these objects as venerable, as holy in and of themselves. That, friends, is idolatry. And there's a big debate in the 8th century. This is not that. These are not holy relics. The point here is power. Christ's power is so manifest, it's just pouring out. And even Paul's garments are packaged with power. Akin to what we see in Mark chapter 5, verses 27 through 34, and Mark chapter 6, verse 56, the hem of Jesus' garment is being touched by the bleeding women, woman and a whole host of other people with physical maladies, and they're being healed. What's the picture? This is, this is the power, manifold power of Jesus, so on display, so manifest, that people are getting healed even by garments. That's the point overwhelming display of Christ's power through his servant, Paul. The Ephesians were fascinated with spiritual power. We're going to see this even more next week as we complete chapter 19. You will see it as you read the letter to the Ephesians. Paul, in that letter, hammers home Christ as 
having all power. He is supreme. He is greater than every power and principality. The Ephesians were enthralled with spiritual power, with the occult, with the demonic. They dabbled in witchcraft and the dark arts and magic. It may seem silly to you, but this is, they were captivated by this. And so what Paul is doing here, what God is doing through Paul is making it unmistakable who holds the power. It's Jesus over all. They're so enthralled with this power, we see some Jewish exorcists seeking to grab that power, to usurp it in verses 13 and following. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. These Jewish exorcists are basically snatching the name of Jesus from the ministry of Paul, and they're using it as a kind of formula or an incantation to cast out spirits without faith and dependence in their own hearts. They're just using it as a, in a formulaic incantation. I command you in the name of the Jesus that Paul proclaims to come out. What happens? Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them, and they ran out of the house naked and wounded. It's comical, and it's ironic. What we see here is a reverse exorcism. Instead of them driving out the evil spirit, the evil spirit comes upon them. It's a reverse exorcism. They were overpowered and humiliated. And friends, we have to stop and just hear this word. Don't play with the demonic. Don't dabble in the occult. Don't mess with this stuff. It is dangerous. I remember as a teenager being at some sleepovers with some of my buddies, and then suddenly a Ouija board is brought out. Now, I wasn't a Christian then, but I knew enough that what these guys were doing was, was not good. Kind of seeking to communicate with spirits, saying these Bloody Marys before a, 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 a mirror, Friends, there are powers and principalities. There are real spiritual forces. And if you approach them in sort of a nonchalant, casual way, without the clothing and the armor of dependent faith in Christ, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Don't mess with this stuff. I remember being in Salem. We lived there for three years. And if you think the occult is a farce, just go up to Salem. And we're eating dinner. And this gentleman came over and, and, and sat like right behind Laura. And we were friendly. I, I didn't know what his story was. But in the course of the conversation, he said, I see three deceased women over your right shoulder. He said that to me. And it was just like this, this sort of darkness came in. This, this man was what the Bible calls a necromancer, one who talks to the dead, 
That, that stuff happens. And if you're ever around it, remove yourself. Don't dabble in this stuff. This news of this spirit coming out of the man and coming on to the seven sons of Sceva spreads throughout the whole region, verse 17. It became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Jesus is greater. As a result of this power display of Christ through his servant Paul, fear and wonder goes throughout the land. Jesus is greater. His manifold power has been on display. And that will be Paul's point as he writes the letter of Ephesians. So when you read Ephesians, which is a very common letter, read Acts 19 as background. It'll help you understand why Paul is pounding, pounding power, spiritual power in Christ because of what the Ephesians were caught up in. This display of power leads to public repentance. Notice verses 18 and following. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. People are becoming clean. They're coming clean with what they were doing. Some of them were converts, but perhaps were still dabbling in this stuff. And when they hear what Paul does, they start just coming clean and confessing. One of the signs of true revival is public confession and public repentance. So the first great awakening in the early to mid-18th century, 1730s through 1750s, a mass movement of revival happened, and one of the signs of true revival is public confession and repentance. When you start seeing people stand up, owning their sins, confessing it, seeking Christ, something is happening amongst a body of people. Christ is moving. Revival is happening. And that's what you see here in Ephesus. They are coming clean. And notice the public repentance of verse 19. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to, came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. What in the world is going on here? They had magic books. And in those books, they would keep spells and formulas, just like those sons of Sceva were saying, I adjure you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. That was a formula or a spell. Those things were written in books in Ephesus and sold at great value. This is going to ruffle some feathers, but this is like Harry Potter on steroids. They literally had books with formulas, spiritual sayings and incantations that they would compile, and then these witch doctors, these magic arts people were selling them at great profit. One silver coin was one day's wage for the average worker. 50,000 silver coins, 135 years' worth of wages. The numerical equivalent today is $6 million. Huge amount of money, which tells you the spiritual state of Ephesus. These people were fascinated, enthralled with the magic arts, with the occult. Now, I know mentioning Harry Potter is a landmine among Christians. I, I understand. I'm not, I'm not making a, a point here. I've read the books and I've watched the movies. I think this is a matter of conscience. We don't not to divide over. But I think we, I would say this. 
There's a fine line between fiction and reality that's not always clear in the mind of our kids. There's a fine line between fiction and reality that's not always clear in the minds of our kids. There's a fine line between fun and foolishness that's not always clear. And so the onus is on parents to help shepherd their kids and have conversations as they're reading Harry Potter, as they're reading you know, something else that has sort of magic in it. Because if taken too far, you can cross the line. And suddenly you find yourself wrapped up in the occult. So look, this is, this, Harry Potter, in my opinion, is a matter of conscience. But it heightens the fact that we need to be proactively shepherding our kids all the time, no matter the content that they're reading at school. Because let's be honest, there's questionable content coming out every day of the schools. We've got to draw near to our kids and help shepherd them and think critically and biblically about the content that they receive. Christ shows his supremacy over demonic power. And the result is the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Where do we see Christ's power most packaged? It's at the cross. At the cross. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 15. You all who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Next verse. He also disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How does Christ triumph over all powers and demonic principalities? At the cross. He disarmed the power of the demonic. He destroyed the occult at the cross. And so if you find yourself caught up in that, Call out to Christ. If you find yourself encountering it one Friday night in Salem or somewhere else in your school or at a sleepover, call out in faith to the name of Jesus Christ. Not a formula, not a spell, but call out in dependence because Christ is greater. And he disarmed those powers by his death and resurrection. At the name of Jesus, the demons shudder. He is greater. He's greater than John the Baptist. He's greater than the unbelieving opposition, and he's greater than demonic powers. One of the ways local churches proclaim the power of Christ is by the regular celebration of the Lord's Supper. And as we conclude our time, we have the opportunity to do that, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, proclaim his power packaged in his broken body and his shed blood. What seemed to be a humiliating defeat was actually the mechanism of his triumph, his death and his resurrection. As we receive the bread and the cup, we proclaim our Savior's power until he comes again. Jesus is greater. Let's pray, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are greater, greater than John the Baptist, greater than all our opposition, greater than all demonic powers, May we come before you, clinging to you, the one who holds all power over heaven and earth. When some of us are discouraged, some of us need forgiveness for the shame that we're caught up in. 
Some of us are perhaps dabbling in things like the occult. Some of us are given over to idols, the fear of man, the desire to prove ourselves. Lord, help us to look to you, the one who is greater than all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our idolatry. Teach us, Lord, to depend upon you. And then move us out, Lord, as your ready servants, wielding the word of power, the word of Christ. Guide us now as we proclaim your death until you come again through the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name we pray.